Welcome to the latest podcast from Williams Investment Management. Today, we have Duncan, John and Robert who are going to answer the questions. And today I'm going to ask the partners of the firm one or two questions which an investor might be expected to ask them. And the first question today is how does an investor or an advisor know how to time the market when buying or selling investments? John, would you like to answer that question? Yes, I would, Ian, yes. Um, I don't think that we should be, or anybody should be trying to time their entry into the stock market. What they should be doing is looking to buy enterprises of substance uh, they will have to make some kind of estimate as to what expectations are implicit in, in a particular share price. But it's far more important to buy enterprises of substance than it is to try and time your entry into the market. So after, after five years, if you try to be too clever by trying to get it 5% cheaper, it will pale into insignificance with regard to, or is more likely to have paled into insignificance uh, when compared to the performance of that business over the same period. So uh, we shouldn't be looking to time our entry into the market. We should be looking to buy good businesses and try to understand what is implicit in their share prices in terms of expectations. And so really what, you're explaining to me is in some ways the difference between an investor and a speculator. Yes, I think that's one way, one way of looking at it. Uh, it would be wrong to say that just because an, a business is a great business, we should pay any price for it because um, it, in, in the words of Warren Buffett, uh, a good business doesn't always make uh, a good investment, but it's a good place to start looking for one. So we can't detach quality of business from some sort of estimate of value. Somebody said recently that there are two kinds of people, those who can't time the market and those who know they can't time the market. I'd just like to add to the previous conversation. When it comes to investing new money for people, what we don't do is invest it all in one go. We gradually deploy the capital in the stock market as and when suitable opportunities arise. Too many advisors, in my opinion, invest everything on day one, which is totally inappropriate because you can be paying way over the odds for certain market for certain investments. So the next question is, what is an investment trust and would an investment trust be a good type of investment? Yeah, so um, an investment trust is a closed-ended vehicle. An investment trust has a fixed number of shares in issue, and the shares are bought and sold on the stock market. Investment trusts can have gearing, that is to say that they can have debt, and the shares trade in the market. They can trade at a premium to their net asset value, or they can trade at a discount to their net asset value. So a net asset value is the value of the of all the underlying investments um, divided by the number of shares, and that is the net asset value. 
Um, and yes, Ian, they do make a good investment. Um, there are many different types of investment trusts available. Um, and historically, they have tended to be uh, to have charges which are slightly lower uh, than their cousins, the unit trusts and open-ended uh, funds like OICs, etc. So in theory, it's a good way for an investor to start to build a portfolio. Because, yeah, absolutely. Because it provides a range of companies within the investment trust yep that, that's right they've been going for many many years and they've provided some phenomenal returns by investing in different areas so if for example an investment trust is is trading at a premium to the asset value is that necessarily a bad thing in other words you're in theory overpaying for what you're getting it would be better if they weren't over, uh, trading at a premium, but it is an indication that the fund has been performing well and people are wanting to buy into the expertise of those particular fund managers. Like Smithson, which is trading at a small premium. Yep, um, Smithson, managed by Terry Smith, um, is trading at a premium. And there are more which are trading at premiums. Historically, Investment trusts have tended to trade at about a 10% discount, but in recent years, mechanisms have been put into place to narrow those discounts. So typically, I would say they trade at between a 7% discount and a 2 or 3% premium. Thank you. Can I just add to that, that in essence, an investment trust is a, is a basket of shares. So it's a very cost-effective way of getting a, a diversified portfolio. So... If, for example, you've got £20,000 to invest, rather than invest in lumps of £2,000 in 10 different companies, which would be very expensive, you can buy an investment trust, which would, would do that for you, but much more cost effectively. Thank you. Yes, Ian, we saw this week a good example of the difference between some of these investment trusts and various OICs um, and unit trusts um, in the fact that... Um, Investment trusts in general tend to be invested in maybe 30 to 40 investments. And um, this this week, we were looking at um, a retirement distribution fund, which was provided by one of the big insurance companies. And besides investing in their own property fund, the second biggest holding is Royal Dutch Shell, which represents 0.19% of the fund. And by the time you get to the 10th biggest holding, it's Glaxo, which is 0.08%. So it does just worry me as to how many different holdings you have in there. You could have something like 500 different holdings, and it turns into sort of death by diversification. There's no conviction. And it's the conviction in investment trusts which can provide that exceptional performance in the long run. Mm. And you made reference in that explanation to OICs, and by that you meant open-ended investment companies. And you explained to start with that an investment trust has a limited number of shares, but could you just explain the difference with an OIC? Yeah, so the, the units are created and retired every day so if if the fund has redemptions then the shares the units are cancelled and if the they have a net increase if in funds going into the the fund then more units are created in, in to me i always referred to them as unit trusts mm. 
Thank you. Well, they're both collective investment uh, vehicles, so there, there is a similarity in, in that particular case. Obviously, the, the unit trust will always trade at, at market asset value, whereas the investment trust, as you've just said, could trade at a, at a discount or a premium. The investment trust also has the capability, should it wish to do so, to borrow which will then introduce uh, a degree of leverage into the returns where a, an OIC or a unit trust does not have those powers. So they're very, very similar, but those are the differences. Uh, I can think of investment trusts that are excellent. I can think of uh, unit trusts that are excellent. So I wouldn't say that one was necessarily better than the other. There is another, another feature of investment trusts, which is the liquidity uh, is provided by the market rather than the unit trust itself. Therefore, if you are investing in pockets of the market where there could be an element of illiquidity, it is probably better to structure that investment via an investment trust rather than a unit trust, which in the wake of redemptions will become a forced seller. So I think that's a protection for ongoing uh, holders with an investment trust if for example you're investing in oh i don't know let's say emerging markets emerging markets will not be as uh, will, the liquidity of those markets will not be as strong as it would be say in 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 in, in western markets so in those situations it makes it makes more sense for them to be structured as an investment trust rather than a unit trust is there a place for premium bonds in a portfolio of investments? I think that's a personal decision. A premium bond thing other than a lottery. Um, and I don't think it has anything to do with what we are doing in terms of managing capital. Okay. What are gilts and are they a useful investment? Gilts are... Uh, or, or represents the debt that the UK government uh, borrows. Uh, they are guaranteed by the UK government, and there has never been a time when the UK government has not redeemed uh, those bonds. They're called gilts because in, in days gone by, the certificates had gold edging, uh, hence, hence the word gilt. Um, whether they're a good investment or not, like perhaps all investments, depends upon the price that one has to pay. At the moment, uh, probably for 10-year gilts, you're, you're getting a, a redemption yield of 1.5% or something of that order. That's nominal. Um, so one should always take off the expected rate of inflation. And if you do that, uh, there isn't going to be in my opinion, too much return left. Uh, gilts have performed extremely well because so many of them have been bought in by the Bank of England uh, with their quantitative easing mandate. In essence, money has been created out of thin air and that money has been used to redeem gilts, which sends the price up, which brings interest rates down. That's a very simple explanation, but that's more or less what's been going on. Uh, so, uh, are they a good investment? Uh, uh, I think our view at the moment would be that you only need a modicum of inflation to destroy the real returns that uh, gilts are capable of delivering. 
therefore, at this moment in time, they are not an asset class that we would favour. Especially as we've got a little bit of inflation just kicking off, haven't we, John? Well, uh, I can't help but take the view that governments for so long, perhaps, well, let's go back to the financial crisis, have got away with creating resources out of thin air to go and buy in their sovereign debt. And so far, they haven't been called to account on it. Uh, so I suspect what's going to happen is because nothing has gone too badly wrong. It's a privilege that they will royally abuse, which means that eventually some degree of inflation must come back into the system. And as you've just said, I think there are straws in the wind that suggest that process is now happening. If you look at the price of gold, look at the price of copper, look at the price of oil, uh, they have all strengthened recently. Look at the price of physical assets, property, another one. Uh, so it looks like we could be on for uh, some degree of inflation that's creeping back into the system. And when guilt returns are so low, you only need a modicum of it uh, to destroy the real returns uh, that they would offer. So yes, I agree with you. It does look like there is some inflation coming back into the system. And inflation doesn't have to go to 1970s levels of double digit. Uh, it really only needs to go to two or 3% to handsomely uh, undermine any form of uh, return that gilts would offer. Thank you. If I like a product, should I buy shares in its owners? For example, Vimto or Nescafe? Well, I, I like coffee and I like Vimto. And personally, I do happen to be a shareholder in, in, in both Nestle and Nichols. Uh, so um, I wouldn't put anybody off from thinking like that. It's a, it's a useful form of market research. Uh, but of course, the fact that one may like a product doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it would make a good investment. But stealing a line from Buffett, it, it might be a good place to start. There could be a product that one didn't like, but you could see was very successful. It was, it was made by a business that had excellent returns on capital and had a, had a sensible balance sheet. Uh, so um, the fact that you don't like it in that case wouldn't necessarily uh, preclude purchase. So, are you, um, are you thinking along the smoking lines there, John? Uh, you could do, yes, absolutely. Uh, you 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 might look at um, at tobacco products uh, and think, well, I don't like them, but um, that doesn't in a free in a free world that doesn't mean that they couldn't necessarily be bought. Okay, can I just add to that? An interesting counterexample to that is that you might like a Tesla car, but whether you'd buy the shares right now or not is a, is a, is a moot point. And you could say Aston Martin, couldn't you? You could, exactly. Next one. Is it easy to buy, hold or sell American shares such as Coca-Cola or Amazon? Yeah, it's very easy to do that. Um, we can buy and sell uh, American stocks, no problem at all. It's the administration which is the problem. FATCA, which was introduced after 9-11, has meant that the uh, US government, the IRS, have clamped down on holding overseas investments or, or their investments being held by overseas individuals. 
And basically, there is now a huge reporting requirement and you have to complete various forms, which we then have to report to HMRC, which are then handed on to uh, the IRS. If you don't report it properly, you can have income and capital withheld, uh, which clearly nobody wants. So the way we really get around it is by buying managed funds which invest in America because you don't have the same reporting requirements. That said, we do hold American stocks for individuals who are prepared to fill in all the W8 Ben forms, etc. And also, most importantly, understand that the level of reporting might get more burdensome as time goes by. Duncan, if I'd asked the question regarding stocks from the EU, would your answer have been similar or different? No, not at all. Um, it's completely different. It's exactly the same as holding uh, shares registered in the UK and traded in the UK. So we buy shares all over the European Union. We also buy Swiss stocks, Danish stocks. Um, it's no problem at all. And you have to consider that not only the, the market can go up and down, but the currency can go up and down. So there's, there's an extra consideration to take into account. I do agree with that, Ian, um, but the type of companies we're buying are massive international companies which trade around the world. So I think Nestle have uh, 3% of their earnings are actually in Swiss francs. Um, 97% of their earnings comes from overseas. So it all comes out in the wash your answer, Duncan, goes back to where we started this discussion, which is whether it's possible to time the market. And the answer is it doesn't really matter if you're buying good things to hold. Correct. The final question today is what are tracker funds? Are they any good? Uh, tracker funds represent an index or a benchmark. Consequently, the performance that you will get will represent that particular index. Now, to me, it makes far more sense to ask, are there any businesses in this index that I truly want to own rather than I just want to own this index? So trackers are not a vehicle that, that we use uh, because uh, they are passive investments. Any tracker is a force buyer of any changes in that index and by the same token, are a forced seller of any changes in that index. So for example, the FTSE 100 is changed every quarter. Some stocks can come in, some stocks can go out. So if you're tracking that index, you will sell no matter what, because those stocks have, have left the index and you will be a forced buyer of those that have come in. I don't think that's very sensible. So um, they are passive investments rather than active investments where a fund manager would buy stocks based upon what what they wanted to own rather than being a forced buyer of what they have to own to reflect an index and is it the case then john that with all this buying and selling that the administrative and dealing costs substantially erode the investment they certainly can do, because every time you buy or sell something, a fund manager is going to be charged some form of commission to do that. Every time you buy something, you will pay stamp duty. So all this to and froing does not come uh, for free. 
Uh, and the more of it that one does, the more costs there are going to be at the margin. And that obviously is going to affect the returns available. So the index that's quoted, let's just say the FTSE 100 index, there are no costs involved in that. But if you're trying to shadow it, then there will be some costs involved in it. So it's always going to be a little more difficult to actually land the performance of the index if you are having to buy and sell. Thank you. It, interesting to see that on the back of one of those quarterly reviews, John, that uh, Renishaw was going to be added to the index. And just a few days before it was added to the index, it put itself up for sale. So you ended up having to buy uh, an investment which had just increased on the back of a potential sale. And as it turns out, that particular price has now fallen. And over 50% of the equity of that business is in the hands of the founders. So once you become a forced buyer, when only half or less half of the market capitalization is available, uh, how uh, do you think the price is going to react? You are a forced buyer at a terrible time in terms of liquidity because half of the stock, more than half of the stock is already tied up. So why would you put yourself in a position where you're a forced buyer of a situation like that? Now, as you well know, we've been, we were buying Renishaw a long time before that, but we were buying it not because we wanted or thought it might end up in an index. We bought it because we thought it was an interesting business with a sensible balance sheet. And one, at some point, due to the age of the founders, something might happen. To me, that seems a far more business-like way of buying Renishaw than being a forced buyer the moment it happens to go into an index. Renishaw's equity is controlled by its founders. So for anyone trying to buy shares in the market, you have less than half uh, to, to potentially buy. So that will reveal itself in terms usually of quite a widespread and it's very difficult to buy any reasonable parcel of shares. I think the other point to make about tracker funds, so with tracker funds, do you get physical tracker funds and you also get synthetic tracker funds? So the, the synthetic ones are put together with various different options and futures and they have, and you end up there with counterparty risk. And in the last financial crisis, we saw what happened when the counterparty was unable to uh, meet its obligations. Robert, it's possible to buy shares in certain football clubs. Would you invest your money in a football club? That's a very interesting question, Ian. The only football club I think I'd invest my money in is Peterborough United, who have just been promoted. But unfortunately, they're not available to buy. There are football teams that are of interest globally. Whether I'd commit my money to it or not is, is, is a different matter. But, for example, I know that Nick Train of Linzel Train has a substantial interest in Manchester, Manchester United. United. Yeah, and his fund's doing all right, so there you go. But apparently, if the press is to be trusted, Mr Train's been having words with the Glazers and he's told them to up their game. Am I ahead of the curve on that one? You are, definitely. Yeah, mm. I'm sure other people knew that, but I didn't. No, it was in the financial press. Um, I, I, don't, I don't read much of that. How do you view um, the owning of bullion? 
I think bullion is a, a very interesting investment. If you look at gold over long, long, long periods of time, it has held its real value. But those cycles can be very long and they can uh, be somewhat disappointing. Equally, they can be the other way. Um, it's not something that we advise upon, but I am an owner of bullion. And there's a reason for that, uh, which is pretty much that I believe that at some point inflation will creep back into the system. And personally, it makes sense to own uh, some hard assets. I look upon it as an insurance policy. This material should not be considered as advice or an investment recommendation. Investors should seek advice from an advisor regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority prior to making investment decisions. All investments carry a degree of risk. The value of investments and any income from them can go up as well as down, and you may not get back the amount originally invested. Information contained in this podcast was true at the time of recording.